Bible has to say about parents and their children. And as we move through this progression in Ephesians, one thing that stands out is we've kind of entered this part where our focus all of a sudden is on the immediate relationships. In fact, if you've been here for any time at all, you know that you know that this particular sermon series, we have even called our relationships. Now, it's easy when we look at that to lose sight of the fact that the book of Ephesians as a whole uh, is one letter being written to a church. I mean, and I just say that to point out that it's easy to look at the book of Ephesians and to jump to chapter 5 and start looking at these individual relationships and lose sight of the fact that chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4, Paul is actually putting his attention and his focus on the doctrinal principles. And more specifically than that, the purpose of the book of Ephesians is that the church in Ephesus, at the time that Paul is writing this, would be reminded of their identity in Christ. If you looked at it, From an argumentative perspective, Paul says, this is who you were before you were with Christ. You were awful. And so we were. Some of us still are. This is who you are in Christ. Not much better, but your position is different and you are justified through the grace of God. In your position with Christ, you're adopted into this beautiful family. You're part of God's family. And now your identity is with him and with his church because he's identified with the church. And looking at these relationships, I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that these relationships are consequential in the way that the doctrinal presents itself. We identify with each other in relationships as husbands and wives, as children and parents, as employers and employees and everything else because of the way that we identify with Christ in the body. That is the purpose of this letter. When I think about that, though, as a pastor, um, as someone who I think some, it can, has a tendency to be at least a little bit stuffy with the doctrinal ideas and the theological things that are happening, this wonderful picture of adoption, what does atonement take place and how does it work together, what is this great majesty of God revealed through the amazing truth found in the church. I mean, I would love to spend time talking about that. I have a tendency not to want to look at what does the practical relationship side look like. I've argued first this morning, be careful, church, that when we're looking through this passage in Ephesians, that you don't just look at the relationships and lose sight of what the, bigger, what the whole letter is saying. Well, I also need to speak to myself and to those who are like me. Be careful, church, that you do not spend your entire time learning about the precepts and the oracles of God and fail to apply it to your life and to the people that you do life with. You see, the truth is, it wasn't through intellectual arguments that I was convinced that I needed to be a Christian. It was actually relationships that planted inside of me an interest to understand what these great oracles of adoption mean. I didn't choose to go to church whenever I was growing up. 
The truth is, whenever I was growing up, the only thing that I wanted to do was to get out of my house. The only reason I spent so much time in the church is because I found through it some sort of vehicle or medium for me to escape the family that I was born into. Even when I was little, before I had friends and everything else, we we joke about it now, but it's actually kind of sad. I would ask my grandma, Glamma, is it the weekend? Because on the weekend, that meant that I could go to Glamma's house. As I got older, there was family conflict that happened and took place and, and everything else, and so there was some division in my family that made it awkward for me to go to my grandma's house, my refuge place, and so I was forced to make friends. It was awful. Fortunately, my best friend, um, I met him in the fourth grade, and we became closer, and, and as we spent more and more time together, eventually... Instead of staying the night at Glamaw's house, I would stay the night at his grandparents' house who lived next door to him. And the only deal was if we stayed the night on Saturday night, we had to go to church on Sunday morning. The truth is, it's through Fred and Dot Zasky, and, and I won't deny the work of God as the sole factor of any salvation or change in my life. But it's through the faithfulness of Fred and Dot Zasky that I'm able to be adopted into God's family. Because they became more than just my friend's grandparents who we spent time with. Their home became my new refuge. And if you don't know what I was running away from, I had parents who did not know Christ. They abused substances, and they abused me and my brothers. When we talk about the corruption that takes place in homes and the devastation that takes place in families, it's easy to look at it and just say that it's a sin problem. But this morning, as we look at what Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, I think we should remember, while the church isn't a solution for a sin problem in the home. The church does point us to having a Christian home that guides children into a relationship with Christ. The Zaskis' home became a place not just of refuge, but a place of discipleship. When they took us to church, we would come home and I would see real Christian zeal and fervor as they would watch and study more sermons and they would do their own Bible studies. They would sit down at the table. They had three meals a day and any time I was over there, they invited me to sit with them. I don't think, actually, I know for a fact they do not know what they did for me in my faith. They don't know. Because I had the privilege later on in life to serve as one of their pastors. And when Dot cried and said, I don't feel like I'm doing enough for the church, I was able to tell her, Dot, do you realize I wouldn't be where I'm at if it wasn't for you? They didn't even realize they were discipling me, but through their faithful life, they discipled me because they gave me an example of what a Christian family looks like. My best friend Brad and I grew up in that church becoming not just involved, but more and more involved where it became a part of life. Brad did not like his picture taken until he was an adult, and he's very good at throwing his hand up. 
We served in the youth group together and, and we participated in contributing to community needs, loving choices. One of the places that we went is a ministry dedicated in Rogers for serving the family, particularly for mothers who are facing the difficult choices that come with having an unplanned pregnancy, supporting them and providing them the resources that they need. Our youth group believed in what they were doing so much just because of the biblical case for, for it that we gathered together as a youth group to find out what we could do to support them. And even then, the Derek that's in this picture is not a theologian. I was a part of youth group because it was a place to get away from home. But those relationships continued to have an impact on me. Those relationships continued to push me further to the place where even in adulthood, whenever I started to face just the reality of what it means to face life, I ran to God because I had been given an example of what it means to run towards God. When we look at relationships, we find that relationships are God's vehicle for evangelism and discipleship. The truth is, I would love as a pastor to be able to grab hold of somebody and say, come with me, we're going to go study the Bible together, and it's going to be awesome. Well, the truth is, I'm not that entertaining. And if you came and studied the Bible with me, you'd probably get very bored. A lot of Bible study can be boring. But living it out, where the rubber meets the road, Whenever you start to see what Bible study looks like when you spend time with other people. Well, now that Bible study is not just intellectual assent, but now it's, it's applicable, tangible things that actually meets life. And, and here's the hard part. It's not easy. That's even dramatic in some cases when you're at war with yourself saying that, as Paul has, has confessed before, I do the things that I don't want to do and I don't do the things that I should. Because application's difficult. But it's through faithful living that all of these things start to point towards what, is it, what does evangelism look like? Because when people look in at your life and they see something different, that's what they respond to. Whenever you spend time with somebody and you're vulnerable and you open your home up to them and you share meals with them and you just live your life the way that you live it in an authentic way, it has an impact on them. Because they begin to realize that all of this Christian stuff is more than just words or assent or, or philosophy. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. And we'll pick up where we left off last week. Looking at a new relationship dynamic. But first, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I thank you for this morning. God, I thank you for your word and the way that it has an impact on our life. God, I pray for those that are here this morning that you would, that you would bless all of us despite sin, despite Corruption, despite the perfect image of God marred inside of us, God, I pray that 
you would help us to worship you in truth and in spirit. That as we turn to your word, our hearts would be turned towards you and that we might receive the blessing of understanding what you have for us. Help us to apply this. Help us to live it out together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We'll read then the first four verses of Ephesians chapter 6. The Bible says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Looking at this, it's very clear why children should obey their parents. And if you need any help breaking this down, I, Paul could not be more clear in the text because you're a Christian. The theme of Ephesians chapter 6 is pretty clear. Going back to Ephesians 5, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, Christian submission in the church should be evident between all believers to all believers that we would reflect God's um, will and order in our lives. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Second, for this is right. What a mind-blowing thought. It is the right thing for children to obey their parents. Honor your father and your mother. Did you notice Paul's quoting there? I don't know if you realize it or not. But that's one of the Ten Commandments. Because it's a commandment. If it's not enough because you're a Christian to do what's right, honor Obey your parents because it's a commandment. And by the way, if you need more reason, it comes with a promise. It's the only commandment that comes with a promise. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. Now, I've always wondered what that promise meant and how I could, you know, what does that promise look like when we sing, standing on the promises of God? What does it mean to stand on the promise of obey your parents so that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land? I'm telling you guys, this is some common sense stuff. If you're a child, believe it or not, you don't know everything you think you should know. Sometimes your parents give you advice to keep you out of trouble because, well, the science is out. The decision-making part of your brain isn't fully developed until you're like 28 years old. <sighs> Obey your parents both for quality of life to keep you from doing something stupid and for quantity of life because those stupid things can have consequences and you could die. Obey your parents. It will save your life. That's a pretty good argument Paul gives us here. With all of that said, I think the interesting part of this passage is actually the relationships established between fathers and their children. Children do not provoke your children to ang- fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We said perhaps the, the greatest reason for obeying our parents is found in the imperative that parents have to lead us. 
It's not just a promise for quality of life and quantity of life in some instances, but it's because I can submit to somebody who has an imperative command found in Scripture to raise me up as a child in the way of the Lord. To show me the way that I'm supposed to go, the way that I'm supposed to walk, that I might not stumble, that I might, whenever they're not there, be able to lead somebody behind me. This is the best part, is this is the biblical model of discipleship. And it doesn't take place through special relationships. It takes place in our homes as fathers and parents lead their children in the way that they should go. Yes, you should obey your parents because you're a Christian, doing what's right in the Lord, because it's right. It just makes sense. I love that. Because it's right. Because it's a commandment. And because it's a commandment that comes with promises. But better yet, obey your parents because their imperative command is in your best interest. It's the same application that we have in submitting as Christians to one another. I submit to the church because the church is there to protect me. Because the truth is, if I'm found in sin, there's nothing that I will be able to see to know that I'm in sin unless somebody's there helping me. The reason I live in submission to one another is because that's how I'm supposed to grow. But let's talk about children for a moment. What an amazing thing that God has given us children when we really start to understand it. And I I didn't spend much time thinking about this until, um, I guess, before I was getting ready to become a youth pastor and and really starting to feel convicted about that and and thinking about my own upbringing and the, the, the different things that come along with that. Because children, you see, when God gives you children, oh, it's this amazing thing. New life. Oh, and not just that. We get a look at this. Remember, I said that I'm a little bit nerdy sometimes. So, a new soul. Not just a new person and a new life, but a new soul with an eternal destiny. <sighs> Parenthood should make you tremble and fear all the ways that you can mess up. Michelle and I joke sometimes between each other. For that one, I'm going to go ahead and put $20 in the jar. What jar, you might ask? Well, it's their therapy fund whenever they're 18 and they need to get therapy for all of the different things that we did. See, children are just on loan for us for a short time. Oh, we say it's only 18 years. Here's the truth that I've learned. Once they hit 11 years old, it's done. Because then they go and play with their friends. You think it's 18 years, it's really only like 11 or 14. They grow up so fast. Oh, and the poor mamas who have to go through graduation. Because they get there and they know, we can't go back in time and there's no way to slow it down and it keeps going on. The other thing we'll notice about children, not only are they the special gift given to us just for a short time, they're on loan in some ways. As perfect as they are, from the moment that they are conceived and life begins, they're flawed. We understand what Paul wrote in chapter 1 and chapter 2 about our identity outside of Christ. We were sinners before we began sinning. We don't sin 
and then become sinners. My little perfect baby girl and perfect baby boy came out of the womb depraved children. They were conceived in sin. They inherited their father's sinfulness. Oh, it's my fault. Oh, and every time they disobey and every time they, they do things that just make no sense and I try to understand what's going on in their toddler brain to make that any rational at all. I have to remind myself I'm the one who gave them that sin. They're flawed from conception. Oh, and because of that, they need the law of God. Need it. Fathers, you're supposed to be a judge in your house who has the law book in front of you. Your children need the law of God because they came out in conception. They, were, they had sin inside of them. They're on loan to you for a short time. They've been flawed from their conception. Of course they need the law of God because if you're a parent, the only thing that you're thinking about is not just the short time that I have with them, not just the career choices they'll make or the decisions that they'll go in, but that one day... They might be saved. And you realize that they're not going to be saved because you did a good job of taking them to church regularly or faithfully. They will be saved because what they saw from you in church was the same person they saw from you at home. Believe it or not, there's a crisis going on in the church right now. I think most of you know about it, about the 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 nuns or those who grow up in church and they leave and they never come back. (coughs) I really believe that the, the number one reason for this group of people who have grown up in the church and who have no intention of coming back to the church is because when they went home with their parents, they saw the same kind of corruption that they were trying to run away from as I did whenever I was growing up. The only difference is the person that they went home with was the same person they went to the church with. And they see that, and there's no inheritance of faith. There's nothing that can build up for them or teach them that they should walk in the ways of the Lord because they don't know what it looks like. There's no genuine discipleship happening. Their parents place all of their attention on their little league games, their extracurricular activities, their academic success, all things that are important. But how astounding is it when those things are more important than their eternal destination? I've told you all before that when Michelle and I were engaged, Michelle was not a Christian. In fact, it was part of my call to ministry was the conviction that I felt when I realized that the woman that I wanted to spend my entire life with, I had no hope of spending my eternal destination with. How absurd is that? That I can say that I want to spend my life with somebody, but I don't even know if they're saved or not. 
In the mind of a Christian, there is no greater objective in raising children than to see them know their Savior for themselves. That doesn't come about just by bringing them to church and making church a priority in your life. It comes about whenever your faith is so genuine that it has an impact on your everyday life. If your children only see you pray at church, they are going to not believe what you are doing is real. There should be memories in there because all of this is relational. We said that God's vehicle for evangelism and discipleship is through relationships. Your children should have established memories in their life whenever you discipline them. They should walk in on you in the bedroom praying down on your knees asking God for help because you don't know how to discipline them without him. We look at this picture between husbands and wives and we confess that not one person is perfect, that we're flawed, that we have marriages that are struggling, that different things can be happening, that we have children that tempt us because they are born depraved. And we say we need help and that we need to rely on one another, but do we spend any time praying? When we finish the sermon in church and we talk about how important it is for fathers to be leading their children, raising them up in the Lord because this is the greatest job that they have on earth. Does one person move from their pew to ask for help? When we talk about how wives should submit to their husbands as in the Lord because this is right, because it honors the image of God inside of their husband, that husbands should love their wives sacrificially, does one husband get up and lead his wife to the altar to pray? When application falls away from studying the Bible, something egregious happens. This book becomes nothing more than a legalistic code for morality. When we come to church to worship God, we do not seek intellectual knowledge. We seek transformation. When we teach the Bible to our children, we do not teach for information. We teach for transformation in them. why the father's responsibility is listed out first it says do not provoke of course there's a parallel passage for this in colossians 3:21 paul writes the same thing but much more succinctly he writes colossians 3:21 fathers do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged and we find that the reason that fathers are not supposed to provoke their children into anger is simply not to discourage them what kind of thing is dis more discouraging than whenever discipline is not measured? When the, the evidence of God's transformation work isn't present in your father's life. What can be more frustrating than hearing one thing and seeing something different? You look at this command and it breaks up into different parts the way it's written in Ephesians. Paul writes, do not provoke your children to anger. Bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. The first part in King James says to nurture them. That we should raise them up in such a way that we are not discouraging them, but actually encouraging them. 
Believe it or not, in the application, if you're coaching somebody, it's much easier to see somebody do well and to succeed if you tell them what to do instead of telling them what not to do. It seems like as we spend time, um, especially with friends who don't know the Lord, the way that they seem to instruct their children is constantly, do not do this, do not do this, do not do that, stay away from that. Oh, and the same thing's been picked up in the Christian household, or at least what we would call the Christian household of the church. When we look at the Bible and we look at it as a list of things, do not do this, do not do that, do not do this. Instead of saying, the Bible says, Deuteronomy 6, 4, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. This is the greatest commandment. Jesus quoted it himself. It's not about what you don't do. It's what you should do. And if you look at that positive imperative, it actually has a bigger impact in your life because by loving the Lord with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul, all of these things actually start to pour out from themselves naturally. What you don't do makes sense because I don't do it because I love the Lord. And if I put my focus on loving God, everything else follows from that. How am I supposed to love the God, though? How am I supposed to do that? The Bible will tell you, but you can also look at your father. That's what Paul is saying in Ephesians. He's writing to Christians specifically. This isn't a letter written to the whole world. Specifically, this is written to the church. Christians, you should be able to look up to your parents as an example. Your parents are going to nurture you encouraging you, raising you up. Hebrews 12 translates the same word to chastening. It's where we get the word discipline in verse 4. Did you know discipleship and discipline come from the same word? Be fair. The consequences should match the, the crime. Be consistent. God is boringly consistent. That's the example that we should have, that we should be fair and consistent, not just in discipline, but in discipleship. And where does all of this run amok? It's pretty simple. People trying to discipline people before their life is disciplined. I call it the 2-2-2 principle for discipleship. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. As these things have been taught to you, teach them to others. The model for discipleship in the church is first these things being taught to you. Fathers and parents, you want to disciple your children, be discipled. There is no instance in the Bible where an undisciplined person is able to nurture the growth of another. This is a very basic leadership principle, isn't it? You can't lead where you've never gone. The second word is to admonish, to encourage. I think it's no mistake I said that we shouldn't lose sight of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus being one letter with one purpose in writing it. That the bulk majority of Paul's time is spent looking at the doctrinal implications of what does it mean that we're adopted, saved through grace alone, and all of these different things. And then he spends time looking at relationships. Look where he goes at the end of chapter 6. 
very familiar passage. Chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There are substantive attacks on the institution of family. And it's not the attacks of politicians, and it's not the attacks of you know, this, that, or a different uh, economical philosophies or anything else. It is spiritual warfare that the family is under attack. Paul gives us an outline of how Christians are supposed to deal with spiritual warfare at the end of this chapter. I want you to realize that it is directly related to how fathers are supposed to lead, encourage, and admonish their children. It won't be the schools that are going to raise our children up into disciples. In fact, it won't be the church. This might blow some of your minds. The church is not here to raise your child into a Christian. The church is here to help you as a parent to come alongside you and to help you to pray, to come alongside you and to help you raise your children. But the responsibility of raising children up in the Lord because they're here for a short time on loan to us in desperate need of the law because they're conceived in sin and they need God's word because one day they will be saved only through the same grace of God that saved you that comes about through faith. That responsibility belongs to the parent. Home should be the place where children learn about faith. I say that to you this morning and I realize that my own personal testimony almost contradicts it. And if you've been here and you've been wondering, well, I don't have children at this moment and my children are almost grown up and I don't know where I'm going to go next, it might seem like this isn't a relatable passage to you or that it has no place to apply in your life. The church is here for parents to help them so that the church can be a parent to the children that have none. Jesus' half-brother James says, there's no Christian ministry greater than this than caring for widows and orphans. My parents weren't suited to be parents. By legal definition, sure, I was not an orphan. But I think any Christian regarding my state would have said that I was an orphan. I had no spiritual nourishment, no spiritual admonishment. I had no one raising me up or giving me an example until the Zaskis came into my life. And I'm so thankful that not only was I adopted as a grandson, but I was adopted as a child of God. Regardless of how old you are, regardless of where you're at in your parenting journey, whether God has called you not to have children, and that's all right too, what God has absolutely called you to be a part of is a part of His family. His invitation is extended to everyone. 
If you would place your faith in him, he accepts you. He adopts you. He calls you one of his own. And the next step is that you would continue to serve and to edify the church. We aren't just parents for our children, but we realize we're parents to one another. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this morning, for the time of worship that we've had. God, I pray that you would lead us in worship, that you would help to guide us to know how to respond to your word and to your message, that we would know how we're supposed to apply this to our lives. And God, even in preaching this, I I pray that you would forgive us of our sin and our failures because this isn't the first time we've heard this message or that we've seen this truth. And God, we needed the reminder and we're thankful for that. But I pray that you would help us to repent that you'd help us to run towards you to be the godly example that you've called us to be in our homes and to each other. In Jesus' name I pray.